Hi, everyone. It's Jivana. I just want to come on for a moment and thank our sponsor, Offering Tree. They're an all-in-one, easy-to-use, community-backed business that saves you time, energy, and money as a yoga teacher. Offering Tree allows you to create a website in less than 30 minutes. Plus, you get a discount through Accessible Yoga. Just go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to get your discount today. Okay, here's our episode. Welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. I'm your host, Anjali Rao. This podcast explores the teachings of yoga for self and collective transformation. We dive into how spirituality and philosophy can ignite social change. I share conversations with folks who are on the front lines of justice and liberatory movements, thought leaders, change makers, and healers. Hello, and welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. One of the objectives of this podcast is to shine a light on the work of compelling scholars, offer a multidisciplinary approach to yoga, and connect that to everyday yoga practitioners. Yoga history is a vast, multidimensional, and can be intimidating for many. As a subject of study, it's barely given any space or thought outside of the academic realm. And yet, there is an overwhelming need for many to know more and to contextualize the teachings of yoga. Today, we have with us Dr. Padma Kaimal, someone who has researched and published about a very specific subject in history. The stories behind the 10th century Tantra Yogini sculptures of South India. I met Dr. Kaimal at the Asian Arts Museum here in San Francisco and was drawn by not only the subject, which was fascinating, but her very real and humane way of storytelling. Dr. Kaimal is chair in history at Colgate University. Her research questions common assumptions about art from the Tamil region of India. And we are going to delve into some of these questions in our conversation. And I'm really, really excited and honored to have you here with us, Dr. Kamal. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here, Anjali. I'm delighted to be here. If I could make just a quick correction, though, I'm in art history, not history here at Colgate. It's a different department. Thank you for sharing that. I probably did not see that because I don't have my glasses on. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome again. And uh, how may I ask, how did your path lead you to this work? Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, specifically, I became interested in the Yogini sculptures from South India because I was looking at another monument. I was looking at... Uh, a temple in Kanchipuram built by the Pallava royal family at the start of the 8th century. It's a very important monument in histories of South Asian art. So when I was a student, I had studied it and I had been fascinated by the building and I really wanted to understand it more. 
And when I went to visit it for the first time in 1984, I was completely overwhelmed by it. And I just kept coming back to it, trying to think, how can I understand this building? One of the things that struck me most, uh, surprised me most, when I first went there was how many goddesses there were, because everything I'd read about it, it was just about how this is dedicated to Shiva, and there are all these different forms of Shiva on here, and that was definitely true. But then there were so many goddesses. So Mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand that, and so I was looking at other sculptures and monuments from the region, and when I came across these yoginis in a book by Vidya Dehagia, I'm on dedicated to yogini sculptures, art, and uh, texts, tantra texts. It just seemed like okay, I have to understand these. When were they? Were they in the same city? It looks like they were in the same city at least at some point. And how could this, these sculptures that were clearly from a temple de- dedicated only to goddesses, how mm. could that have helped me understand this older monument that had more goddesses than anybody had led me to expect? Mm. And I, I, I was witnessing yours talk, your very interesting talk on Scattered Goddesses, the book that you published the research uh, on, and it traces the journeys of the the 19th century Tantra Kanchipuram yogis that you were just mentioning, uh, from their birth homes in ancient South India through colonization to their present homes in 12 separate museums in North America, Western Europe, and South India. And I really appreciated the way you were narrating the history without blaming uh, entirely your non-binary approach uh, to the histories, because that is something that I am very intrigued by, to really integrate the narratives, various narratives of history without uh, just making it, you know, the victim and the uh, the, which you mentioned that too, the victim and the perpetrator, that we often go into those kind of dichotomies. So I like this line a lot that you wrote in your book uh, that, you know, this particular line that says, seeing connections and interdependencies rather than polarities and oppositions is something you have learned through this research of unearthing their stories. And I would love for you to delve a little bit more into that and what can we learn from this, especially now in this moment where entire histories are being erased and rewritten? Oh, very, very exciting and the enormous question. Yes. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I realized well, as I started looking at these goddesses that I that I had a lot of catching up to do. I needed to understand the worship of goddesses in South Asia in a much deeper and broader way than I did. So I spent a year at least, really a year and a half, reading everything I could get my hands on and looking at every example I could find of of goddess imagery in all different contexts in South Asia over, over the centuries. And some of the most mind-boggling stuff that I found was written by uh, 
by a woman named Frederique Apfel Margolin, who was a professor at Smith College in anthropology for a number of years. Uh, before that, she was actually my teacher in Odyssey dance when I was a teenager in the Boston area. And she was the most beautiful Odyssey dancer you could ever imagine. So I, I knew her. I, and then I was really excited to encounter her work as a scholar. As an anthropologist, she was working with uh, with people in South Asia and, and particularly in Orissa and asking them a lot about what was involved in devotion to goddesses and what uh, and, and really how were people thinking about gender. She wrote mm. some excellent pieces about the about this idea called mangalam uh, mm. tamil mangalam in sanskrit mangala that mm. was uh it was a non-binary way of thinking about mm. gender and about um about kind of everything life and death mm. uh nurture and violence um she it's a it's a kind of an agrarian way of understanding mm. that everything is connected mm. that you can't grow new plants in the field unless you put decaying matter in the soil mm. and the same the same substance that could be a poison in one situation could be a medicine in another situation so it's it's a it's a a set of ideas that's about a constant resistance to binary that right. every time you think you've encountered a binary you're just only seeing part of the picture and if you mm-hmm. could see the whole picture you'd see you would see these connections you'd see these 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 circular flows you'd see these these cyclic continuities and and that everything was like that. She she writes about female ascetics and mm. points out that ascetic that that previous assumptions about asceticism had been overgeneralizing without thinking through gender. Right. And that in fact things that had been coded as male were were just ascetic practice and that mm. female ascetics used those too. So um Celibacy, for example, is something yeah. that would empower equally a male right. or a female body. Right. And it, it it wasn't something that just men did and women didn't do. It was something that right. celibates did, and it was always empowering. And it hardened everybody. It made it fierce and strong, whereas procreative activity makes everybody male female mm. third gender makes everybody's every body soft and mm. fecund and mm. gentle and relaxed and, and so so mm. she she did this really wonderful work that that kind of just opened a new place in my brain yeah and then i started looking at these yoginis and i thought i think they maybe they didn't use the word Mangala in this in this particular set of in the, Context, in the temple yeah. that this existed in, but these are the ideas I'm seeing. I'm seeing these mm-hmm. goddesses who are incredibly fierce 
and incredibly voluptuous. And they are they're they are frightening and they're nurturing at the same time. So I used I used her work. And then of course a number of other people have also written about the idea of Mangalam and I I got my hands on every single one I could and tried to to figure it out. So this makes me wonder why is it that we are not informed by such a wonderful concept of mangalam as even as a practitioner as a you know a person who is deeply interested in non patriarchal lineages in yoga for example and unearthing that just digging through mountains of information to get to something like this you know that there is some there is um sort of i would assume a matri lineal matriarchal uh whole lineages lineages of you know teachers and our ancestors and asceticism and all of that not really well known and why is that do you think i mean i know the answer kind of but can you can you elucidate in your words i'm not i mean i'm not sure i think it's it's one of those kind of complicated combinations of things right. um yeah i think that uh i think that it's it's it wasn't uh i think that that binary thinking is really fundamental to monotheistic religions yeah and particularly abrahamic faiths at any rate are mm-hmm. fundamentally poised on a binary and uh, all kinds of binaries everything is binary good and evil male and female these are all polar oppositions in that system of thinking so that system of thinking that's been present in south asia and gets even stronger with european colonization and imperialism it, it it makes it harder to hear this other way of knowing but mm. this other way of knowing has been in south asia all the time and right. frederick met lots of people who could teach her about it when she was doing her field work in arissa there are still mm. lots of wise people and and many of them are women but it's not only women who think this way there are no. there are all kinds of men who are who would say they're they're they they worship shakti and they understand that 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 gender is that 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 binaries are not a a very helpful way thing to think with right because one of the thing is that first of all gender itself is not in a binary right gender there are so many genders and uh the the research which which you do i thought was critical even when you were sharing that in the museum that day because i heard you say that i heard you say that so many times that all of our understandings are coming from the a sort of a dominant narrative of history actually uh and i that's what really drew me to your work also and the way you narrated it because it was uh said through the medium of these tantra yoginis and the way you traced it because i you you we you were inviting us into considering that you know let what happened to the statues was not a simple thing it went through all these processes it went through all these ownerships um 
not only because this was a bad guy and a good guy, but there was all kinds of things in between. So I really enjoyed that because I think right now we are asked, like I said, to either completely erase a history to bring the dominant narrative uh, in into more of um, uh, mainstream or to perpetuate that. So that's my question to you. How can we learn uh, from this sort of disrupting the binary when entire histories are being erased how would we how would we talk either talk more about this teach more about this and i know there was some resistance even from all scholars i find that they immediately say oh i'm not a yoga practitioner i don't know whether this is the right thing but i do think that this is the right thing because everyday yoga practitioners don't know all of this right yeah. so how would how would you think we can go about sharing this in an everyday way oh that's a that is it i think it's a constant practice you know yeah. it's, it's about in the same way that our our physical yoga practices uh same as if we are reading the yoga sutras it, yeah. we have to we have to keep looking at them again and again. You know, the first time we look at them, we think we understand them, and then we come back to them and we read them some more and realize, oh yeah, those I, I, those those bad habits of mine keep sneaking back in. You know, <laughs> yeah. the ego, the inclination yeah. to say no to things, the, <laughs> all of the like, to just shut something out and not explore it. Like all of this is such wise stuff that it. It, it it it's something I needed to see many times, and yeah. and the practice of resisting binaries is I think it's it's going to be a lifelong practice for me. It's a just us. try to recognize it when I see it, mm-hmm. and then and then just stop and say, oh, mm-hmm. there it goes, there goes a the binary. That's yeah. probably only a partial understanding, yeah, or it's probably something. That's been generated by somebody who is trying to uh, is trying to like weaponize me, and and mm. I need to I need to know if I'm being manipulated in some kind of a way. Why should I think that something is that simple? Human beings are. I mean, there are some things. I mean, there are terrible acts. There are sins. There are crimes against other humans and. I don't think that I don't think that everything is mushy. I think there there are lines I would draw, and um, but but when I'm but but in in many other cases, I I do stop and I ask myself, what you know, what do I not know about this situation? Mm -hmm. How is my how is my view of this not quite complete? Who who do I who do I look to for? a more textured understanding of something. And and I feel like that about the history of colonialism too. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's so easy to flatten it out and just say, yeah. oh, those people were so bad. And right. yet I I I love the work of Salman Rushdie, particularly Midnight's Children, mm-hmm. because of the way he uses metaphor to unpack how how many stranded the impact of colonialism has been and that it's been empowering for South Asia as as much as it was disempowering and uh, and 
criminal and greedy and and all those things but also the english language has like blown things wide open things that we what did we what did we understand about india as an idea before Mm -hmm. the british draw the maps that way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's and when we think about the impact of colonialism on the movement of objects, like the mm. Yogini goddess sculptures that uh, came from the Tamil region, mm-hmm. we, you know, some of that was illegal and some of that was wrong, but also it was preservation. And yes. also it took objects to places where lots of people could see them. Should they stay there? That's a whole different question that one has to look at really closely. But not every object in a museum is stolen. Not every, not everything that left India left illegally. Sometimes, you know, people brought things, family heirlooms with them when they left and then gave them to a museum. So that's the the whole the whole binary of who is, you know, who owns past who owns objects in museums that is a really important place not to go to binary thinking and it's so Mm -hmm. hard because the discourse right now about it around it is so loud i taught a course last semester with a really dynamic bunch of students there were 25 of them and i i figured i was going to have to go in there and kind of you know help them understand what cultural property meant and help them think that maybe everything in museums didn't belong there. Maybe some of it should go back. Uh Uh-uh. I'd say 22 out of them, 25, couldn't wait to just pack up every single item, UPS, and ship it back to its country of origin. And I had to, no, 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 no. You don't even know if people want them back. They don't want everything back. And some of the things were actually legally obtained. There's a great example in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. There is a South Indian mandapam that's been reconstructed inside. And when I first went there, when a lot of people go there, they think, oh, my God, where's the poor Tamil temple that doesn't have its mandapam that was yeah. stolen. This is terrible. The curator, Daryl Mason, the Stella Cramrish curator of South and Southeast Asian art at the museum has written a wonderful book, very extensively researched, discovered that these stones were purchased by a Philadelphia woman on her honeymoon in Tamil Nadu because the local temple was rebuilding their mandapam, and they wanted new stones. And these Mm -hmm. old stones, they didn't want anymore. They were on a heap. And she offered them money, and they said, okay, (laughs) sounds great. So it was, you know, that we we think we know those stories, and we go to a binary place when we walk in a museum. But that is a great example of how we just don't Mm -hmm. know. We don't know the whole story. And every single object in museums now does deserve a very careful study, uh, really careful research into its provenance to discover whether where that piece belongs. Mm, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Hi, everyone. I just want to pop in here really quick and remind you about our sponsor, Offering Tree. 
As yoga teachers, we are our own business managers, website designers, and producers. It's a lot. And Offering Tree offers an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to succeed while we're doing all the things. And I'd just like to say that through this partnership with the Love of Yoga podcast, Offering Tree has shown that it's committed to supporting accessibility and equity in the yoga world. Offering Tree is a public benefit corporation, and they're driven by a mission of wellness accessibility, which we share with them at Accessible Yoga. As an Offering Tree user, you'll get uh, to join a supportive educational community, and you'll also get free webinars with top experts in wellness and entrepreneurship. And of course, you get a discount. So go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to learn more and to get your discount. Okay, let's go back to the episode. I want to hold on to that thing about the museum because I do have a question on that later. But I want to also unravel, unpack what you just said about, you know, um, the the tension of um, appropriation or misrepresentation of a colonized culture. and along with how do we hold that with you know fostering this narrative of uh, interdependency or um, non-polarized view of history tell me more about this question because it feels um it feels really uh 30,000 feet up there and I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to think of how how where are the anchors in specifics or on the ground yeah. So, for example, you know, we, we when when the West, Europe, North America has has colonized. Now, let's talk about India, uh, colonized the countries, and then they sort of mis they sort of use uh, or misuse or misrepresent or simplify um, some of the practices, some of the c- cultural objects, um, and. And at the same time, we're also asked to hold this thing about interdependency in in or, or you know within the within the context of colonizer and colonized um, when it comes to culture, right? So that's what that was my question. How do we hold the tension between appropriation and understanding that, oh yeah, like some part of the colonized India, as like like you mentioned, which was not really India, pre-British, um, there was something that came out of that also. So how do we hold that tension? Or maybe there mm. is not a question, but a statement or that we need to hold that tension. I think that's a great way to see it. <laughs> yes, that, that, that tension is there. And some people have done bad things for very bad motives. And uh, and and yet undoing them is usually not possible mm. understanding them and moving forward is a better way to try to move i think and uh so yes uh, there's all kinds of art history that's been written about South Asian objects that's demeaning or flattening, oversimplifying. But there's also some really sensitive, wonderful stuff that mm. kind of didn't get noticed. Uh, there's a there's an art historian in the early 20th century named E. B. Havel, who mm. Englishman, 
um, just really loved South Asian stuff back when it wasn't even being considered fine art and kept pointing out, no, look at it. It's really cool. I, I, I think it's, I think it, it, it's about this. And I think this is very beautiful, this shape, this form, these aesthetics. And so, so there's, it's complex, you know, mm. colonizers not all don't agree with each other, <laughs> even, right. even, right. Even, yeah, even the British, even the yeah. English, when you're talking about, at any, any given moment in the history of colonizing India, they're back in England fighting like cats with each other about mm. what they should and shouldn't be doing in India. Should right. they even be there? So, right. yeah. So the the colonizers are one thing. The colonized are not one thing. Right. There's so yeah. much multiplicity there. Yeah, there is, there is. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I know that was a tough question and that was probably a, uh, need, needs a whole another book on that. Um, and uh, going back to your thing about, you know, museums, because that is something that I also ha- grapple with. You know, I'm an avid museum goer and I saw this on your bio as well. Uh, so I have to ask again, are museums the problem, the solution or both? To all the discussion and the discourse over like cultural property. So, I think I think museums have to be at the center of the conversation about where do we go from here, Mm. and uh, they, the the people who who have been keeping objects safe all these years in their museums, understand a lot about them. True. And um, and 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 so and and again, you know, we're just looking at a really wide range of people. There are some people in museums and some boards of trustees in museums who who've gotten you know really anxious about all this cultural property stuff, and they just see it as a threat and has to simply be resisted. But there are other people like Daryl Mason who are launching into research, very careful provenance research. There are provenance researchers at museums, uh, at many museums right now. Often they're being funded by by grants and, and they're taking this very seriously. And they're in a perfect position to figure out what shouldn't be here and what should happen with it. So you have to have people working inside museums, access to all those files, figuring this stuff out. And some pressure from outside is sometimes important as well, because, you know, it, I think I think that 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, I could never have imagined how much pressure is, would be on museums yeah. now to return things, or that 22 of my students would just be, you know, right there with their UPS boxes, send it back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would never have imagined things would change so fast, but they have. The yeah. landscape has completely transformed, and now now the, the default seems to be that re, everything should be repatriated. Yeah. I, I I think that pressure it, museums are feeling that a lot right now, and many of them are behaving very responsibly about it. So in that hear. way, I think they are they're key to the solution. Yeah, but they also are, I hope also in in integrating the people whose objects they have 
they are showing showcasing in their museum so it's i i would say it would be important to even get that as a part of the collective decision making i hope that's so a, that's a very important point and many museums that i work with directly have taken that very seriously mm-hmm. uh and in fact they've built strong connections with the local communities that identify with objects in the museum and those communities are the ones who don't want the objects returned they yeah. really want them representing their the culture, culture in this exalted space of a museum because right. a museum is like a jewel box right a museum right. is like a stage and right. and it glorifies objects it can glorify objects that mm-hmm. are held inside it and i talked to one curator um at the cornell museum Ten, ten years ago, and she said we have never gotten pressure from our local communities to repatriate any of these objects here. We've only gotten pressure from communities that feel underrepresented. So the mm. Tibetan community in Ithaca was very distressed that there were no Tibetan objects in their museum, mm. and they wanted the collections there. So right. the local communities are. Again, you know, is there only one way to be South Asian? Of course not. The huge right. South Asian diaspora and many people in the United States actually are thrilled to have South Asian objects here. Sometimes That's they've true. contributed to have them purchased by the museum. And the San Francisco Asian Art Museum is a great example of mm-hmm. building strong connections with the mm-hmm. South Asian community in the area and asking, you know, asking people, what should we do? You know, what kinds of what kinds of subjects would you like to have guest speakers come and talk on? What do you think about the way this uh this gallery is set up? Is this respectful? We want to represent this deity. Should we be careful about the you know anything about the representation, the framing, the lighting, the the height at which it's standing? So again, you know, mm. is yeah. South Asia only in one place anymore? I'm yeah, not sure it is. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Thank you for sharing that. Um, one of the things that I also wanted to kind of, uh, you know, ask you to share is about this question that you had in your bio, because it is about patriarchy in art history and monument building. And I think there are so many narratives in yoga yoga history there are obvious parallels and intersections between the two so this question really stood out to me and i'm really really intrigued to know did kings build the only architecture that matters no and <laughs> no yeah that's a good thing <laughs> short answer but, uh, <laughs> can you share some more like surprising discoveries or interesting discoveries for the listeners Happy to, sure. Uh, So I kind of came at that question from two different angles. And one was to look at buildings that that, um, we can find information about their patrons. Uh, And I, I looked at buildings that were constructed during by Pallava royalty mm-hmm. in the area around Chennai and a bit further south. And those often have inscriptions right on Mm -hmm. them in the stone that say who built them. 
And some of them talk about kings. And there's one king in particular whose name appears on a lot of them, Rajasimha, who's at the beginning of the, the first quarter of the eighth century. And But if you keep looking on some of those monuments, like the Kailasanatha temple in Kanchi, you'll see that there are other inscriptions that are by women. And that mm. uh, say uh, that uh, I'm the... The, the mother or the wife or the daughter of the king who built that part of the monument and now I'm building this part of the monument mm-hmm. so in and and then I found the same thing happening along the Kaveri River mm-hmm. in central Tamil Nadu there are buildings that are constructed smaller buildings that are constructed by women who are related to men who are building others' mm. buildings. So mm. building a temple, in, at least in, in the Tamil region from mm. the 7th century to the 11th century, seems to have been a family project. And mm. men and women in the same family were choosing to invest their surplus wealth that way mm. that this is interesting especially for us who are like you know students of yoga because this tells us that there was economic agency uh, for women uh and in in that time and that would as somehow translate to uh spiritual philosophical traditions having some sort of uh, influence over that i would assume or is that too much of a jump uh, it, it may not be too much of a jump for some people. I just um, I just haven't gone there in my research. What mm-hmm. I've been concerned with are um, what I've been able to find have been um, there's there's some economic and, and uh, statistical research that Leslie C. Orr has done on women as patrons in the Chola period. She's mm. found that there are hundreds, of, she, she's she's collected thousands and thousands of inscriptions from the Tamil period. And she's found that there are phases where women ha- seem to be giving a lot more to temples mm. and then some other phases where they're giving less. And mm. when they are giving, these women are in control of financial resources. Right. And the rule, the laws around that may have shifted, seem to have shifted in the same way that we see that happening in European history. So, for example, Jane Austen is writing about a time when women's access to wealth is suddenly being curtailed. Right. And this is this crisis, you know, you have to marry some horrible man or all of your family <laughs> money is going to be entailed away. Right. So that that there are these waves apparently mm-hmm. in the history of south asia where women have had more or less financial uh independence mm-hmm. uh independent access to to financial resources and mm-hmm. in some in some phases it seems like they uh, in in the ninth century it seems to be real efflorescence ninth and into the 10th century we see women in the Kaveri region building a lot. Mm. We also see a bunch of people who are not kings or queens building mm. at this time. And merchants. 
are they the merchants or who are they this is something yeah. i feel like i don't fully understand yet there are various names for them sometimes it's the nagaratar which is the you know the merchant community of right. an area sometimes it's these valalas what mm-hmm. is a valala sometimes they're groups that seem to be kind of like kings but not mm-hmm. that powerful and then again it's kings and queens it's the men and the women in these families right. who right. are making donations and constructing monuments so there's my guess my guess right now is that there's a before wealth gets really centralized in the um in the 11th century uh surplus wealth throughout the incredibly fertile Kaveri region is is divided in all kinds of ways. And there's kind of a spectrum of wealth. There are, of course, lots and lots of people who have none and who are just doing all the hard work. But then there are some people who have a bit to give. And then there are some people who have a chunk to give. And then some other folks who have a lot to give for 50 years and then their family loses the authority that was right. getting them all that wealth and they don't have it anymore. So it's 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 more it's it's more of a, a mixed landscape of wealth mm-hmm. in the ninth and tenth century. And and so women have access and uh small landholders have access. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So this is another thing that I as an I self-confessed uh you know history nerd is really curious to ask you how can a non-academic learn from you or scholars like you like there is so much of thirst and need in the yoga world especially because that's what i'm representing right now um to learn from scholars directly you know so how how do we do that is that possible of course it's possible well i will i mean I think lots of my colleagues write in a very accessible way. I certainly have always tried to to produce scholarship that that normal human beings could read and understand. And my mother has always been my target audience. She was mm. she passed away in uh, in November, but she was a very dedicated museum go- goer. She uh, she wasn't a professional academic, but she read like crazy. And mm-hmm. she was a brave traveler and adventurous cook. And and she she was, yeah, I, I that was my exactly the sort of person that I wanted to talk to. I wanted right. somebody who was open-minded and right. bright and not at all, hadn't read any of the things that I've read for my you know, for my exams anywhere. And, and so I'm always trying to write for her and Mm. she keeps, she, until she died, she was reading it. Yeah. I like that. I understood that. So that's my, that, that's my goal. I don't think that these should be, uh, these should, that reading an academic text should feel like solving a puzzle. It should (laughs) just jump out at you. It should just open itself up and tell you, in in normal language accessible yes. language here are some ideas you can play with so yeah i i i would hope that that many of my colleagues would 
would do the same. And even if a book comes out from a university press, anybody should feel empowered to pick it up and take a look. Does the introduction make sense? Yeah. Dive in. Absolutely. And that's why I think that's why I invited you too, because I was reading your book and I really was so drawn into the story. And it was like, a, it was like a, a thriller. Uh, like a historical mystery thriller with like lots of, of course, lots of really layers of information, but it did not feel inaccessible to me. So, and I really appreciated your storytelling approach because that's what I try to uh, share as well when I, when I teach. So I really appreciate your time. I, I, and w- one last thing, what is, what are you working on right now? Anything that we can look forward to studying or reading from you? Sure, sure. Well, I am just about to begin a year of leave from teaching and diving into uh, my next research project. So this is, uh, I've accumulated, thanks to many generous research grants, I've accumulated several thousand photographs of temples throughout South India, but especially along the Kaveri River. Many Mm. of them are quite remote, and um, many of them are uh, incredibly beautiful Mm. and not widely known. Mm. So I, I would like to, I'm building a database for all of my images and then I would like, and, and I'm, I'm hiring a GIS specialist to peg that database to a layered map, a digital map, so that you could click on a site and see all of my photographs of that site. Hmm. And uh, then you could click on many sites and say, I want to see the Shiva sculptures at all of these different places. And for me, that's going to be a tool to start analyzing. Are there topographical patterns? Are there chronological patterns that would help me see the movement of specific artist workshops, for example, or the, the to try to like, to find the people we've lost, you know, mm. where are where are human beings in the yeah. production of these beautiful objects? The other, and then ultimately, it's going to take at least a year to get there. I would like to put this online to uh, have it uh, public access so mm. that anybody could, in theory, track down a stolen sculpture from these remote temples and say, well, but it Kaimal photographed that there in 1984, so we don't. It 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 shouldn't have been removed. Mm. That sounds very much needed. Yeah, if it shows up in a museum, I and mean, people have already yeah. been doing this kind of work. They've been using oh. books to do it. Uh, a, an object that appeared at the Australian National Museum, somebody pointed out, was in a book from 1974 by uh, Douglas Barrett called Early Chola Architecture and Sculpture on a temple in mm. the Kaveri region. And mm. that the presence of that photograph actually was created the repatriation of the object. So wow. stolen objects, not every object, but stolen objects could be potentially repatriated or even better, just this I would love for this this website to be something d- that discourages further illegal removals. 
Matthew. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And it sounds really exciting. Um, much needed. So again, I'm so, so grateful, Dr. Campbell, for your time and for your generosity in sharing. And I cannot wait to uh, see what you come up with in the next few, next year. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Anjali. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Love of Yoga podcast, an offering from Accessible Yoga Association. Please support our work by becoming an ambassador or by visiting our online studio at accessibleyoga.org.